This is OBS Radio, a service of OBS International, a division of Greater Works Business Services. into birth 20 at the Port of Oakland. Just walking up now. Um, I can see a number of police cars as I'm walking up. It's the morning of November 3rd, and the military supply ship Cape Orlando is moored here at the Port of Oakland. I'm surrounded by activists waving Palestinian flags and holding signs like Stop the Genocide. Okay, so I am here standing in front of the ship Cape Orlando. Um, the gate to the fence has currently been blocked by um, activists carrying a banner that says no U.S. military aid to Israel. Um, there is a drum circle as you can hear. I would estimate there to be at least a couple hundred people out here. These activists came here to stop this ship from leaving. We became aware that a military vessel was leaving the port of Oakland this morning, intended to go to the state of Israel and carry military cargo. That's Lara Kiswani, the executive director of the Arab Resource and Organizing Center. We called on our allies and community within minutes, and at 6 in the morning, we had several dozen people here, and within minutes, it became hundreds. The ship tried to leave, and as soon as it tried to leave, people took it upon themselves to make it known that we will stop any attempt to aid in apartheid Israel. It's currently being locked down by people from the community who are ensuring that the ship cannot go anywhere. 
A handful of activists actually climbed up onto the ship. I talked to a couple people who saw what happened. They didn't want to share their names. Yeah, they started lifting the anchors and uh, taking the ropes and individuals jumped on because that was the only way to stop it from going anywhere. So, yeah, a few individuals jumped on the ladder. So we're trying every tactic that we can. And at this point, if it needs to be outside of legal means, like we're putting our bodies on the line to physically stop this ship from going. The ship did eventually leave the port but only after a delay of many hours. And it was met by more activists at its next stop in Tacoma, Washington, en route to Israel. These activists are part of a global solidarity movement calling for an immediate and permanent ceasefire to Israel's genocidal war in Gaza. The war started in early October, and since then, there's been an outpouring of constant protests and demonstrations in the United States calling for a ceasefire and an end to U.S. military funding for Israel. But this is just the most recent wave of actions, because people have been organizing for free Palestine for a long time. Palestinians have faced displacement, apartheid, and state repression for decades under Israeli occupation. Gaza residents, who are mostly refugees displaced from other parts of Palestine, suffered under a brutal Israeli blockade. On today's show, we'll hear from several voices about Israel's deadly assault on Gaza, the global industry that profits from the war, and how the Palestinian liberation movement is tied to the struggle for abolition. As we were finalizing this episode, news came out that Israel and Hamas agreed to a humanitarian pause in the fighting and a hostage exchange deal. The Israeli government has stated that it will continue the war after this pause, and activists are still calling for a permanent and lasting ceasefire. To start us off, we wanted to check in with someone we've worked with in the past, Rami Al-Maghari, to get a sense of what it's like on the ground in Gaza. Getting in touch with him has been challenging, but he sent Making Contact a short update on November 16th. Over the week, and Israel has intensified its strikes, every strikes on various parts of the territory, including the southern, the middle, the northern Gaza Strip, as well as Gaza City, which has been under Israeli control. Many parts of Gaza City have been under Israeli control, military control. Rami recorded that from a refugee camp near the center of Gaza Strip, where the Israeli Defense Forces also carried out an airstrike just weeks ago. These Israeli uh, strikes continue unabated. There has been a strike on the municipality of Gaza, the uh, premises of the Gaza municipality, for the third time in the past 40 hours, maybe for the, for, for the third time. Uh, the Indonesian hospital in northern Gaza Strip they hit nearby the hospital, around the hospital. People have been reportedly killed and others injured in many parts of Gaza City have been under Israeli control, military control over the past week, over the past, uh, over the past several days, actually, as the Israeli army has stormed already the Al-Shifa hospital, which is a major hospital in the Gaza Strip. That was Rami Al-Maghari reporting from Gaza. 
The images from the hospital bombings he describes are disturbing. Those attacks left northern Gaza without a working hospital in a devastating blow to the local healthcare system. Medical facilities, hospitals have been bombed, have been besieged. This is Nora Barrows-Friedman, associate editor at the Electronic Intifada and longtime reporter on Palestine issues. The largest medical complex in the Gaza Strip, Al-Shifa Hospital, uh, was stormed by Israeli soldiers and snipers were shooting at people, doctors and patients and medical staff inside the hospital. We're going to zoom out from the situation on the ground in Gaza to looking at the various actors involved in these atrocities. So I sat down with Nora to hear about the weapons that Israel is using in attacks like on Al-Shifa Hospital and where they're coming from. Um, I kind of want us to take a closer look at at Israel's military industry. So Israel is one of the world's most militarized countries, as well as a major weapons um, supplier internationally. Um, I'm wondering, could you maybe sketch out for us a broad picture of what Israel's military industrial complex um, looks like and how it enables this current genocide and the ongoing occupation? Israel is a settler colonial rampart of Western imperial interests in the Middle East. Israel is not only a leading arms manufacturer that sells its uh, so-called battle-tested or field-tested weaponry to other states around the world. Of course, the research and development wing of of these weapons are the people in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, uh, specifically Gaza, over the last, you know, 20 years. Tons of brand new weaponry are tested on Palestinians and then sold in the world market by Israeli arms companies. Um, but it's also a leader in surveillance technology and biotech you know, weaponry and, and technology. Um, so Israel is also a leading um, supplier of spyware for governments uh, and bad faith actors around the world. And, of course, it is all supported and financed by the U.S. The U.S. has, you know, I mean, it, it finances the Israeli military up to, you know, three, sometimes six billion dollars a year. Um, a lot of that is also um, through weapons contracts. The U.S. also uses Israel as a weapons storage depot um, where it can you know, store weapons for U.S.-led uh, imperial interests in the region. I mean, it is so expansive and it is so insidious. Um, Israel's weapons industry is its biggest export. I mean, where do we start? I, you know, Israel uh, uses drones, surveillance drones on Palestinians right now as we speak. These same surveillance drones are the ones that the U.S. Department of Homeland Security has purchased uh, to patrol the border wall between the U.S. and Mexico. You know, uh, th- there are these weapons, uh, something that's called the the Ninja Missile, I believe. And it is designed to, upon impact, kind of uh, like fan out these blades. And they're designed to rip flesh just into pieces. Like, I'm just imagining people in business suits sitting around boardrooms, 
coming up with designs for these kinds of weaponry. I just, I have a lot of just fear for humanity that this is what our minds can come up with um, and that these weapons are, are being used against mostly children in the Gaza Strip is just, uh, I, I mean, there are no words. I, I, keep, I keep losing words for, for this horror that we're seeing. I feel like we need to come up with a brand new vocabulary. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when you were, you were talking about this um, vision that you had of people in boardrooms, I, I was also thinking about just like kind of the role of global defense corporations as well, who are, who are not only like enabling the genocidal war, but also profiting from it. Um, you know, can you talk about like some of the other players who, who are profiting actively now? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the big three, you know, in the US, which is Raytheon, Lockheed Martin and Boeing, um, which design uh, and manufacture not just missiles, but also, you know, the warplanes, um, the fighter jets, drones. Um, we're talking about Elbit Systems, which is an Israeli company, but which has headquarters in the UK and uh, facilities in the US, especially on the East Coast. I mean, it, it is an enormous industry, I think, and it's so ingrained with... Um, you know, Western capitalism. I mean, they're just, they're just normal factories producing normal products for normal states to be used in normal situations. That's how, that's how it's marketed. You know, Boeing, oh, they make airplanes as well. You know, we all fly passenger jets. Boeing also makes weapons that kill people. Um, Raytheon is, is one of the biggest weapons manufacturers on the planet. Uh, Lockheed Martin as well. And, and it's just these players are always excited when there's, uh, you know, a global conflict or a war or a genocide happening because their stocks go up, because their products become more, more valuable. Um, and we're seeing now, we're seeing these uh, stock prices rise. We're seeing economic experts talking about, um, you know, how great this war on Gaza is for these weapons manufacturers, how it's all just kind of normalized and into this sort of like natural, you know, outcome of, of capitalism and, and Western interests. Um, I mean, it's just, it's devastating. Um, and it should, it should not be normal. It should be, you know, these weapons manufacturers are complicit in war crimes and crimes against humanity. Um, and when we look at what's happening in Gaza, when, when children, fathers and mothers and grandparents um, are being, and, and doctors and journalists and school teachers are being shredded to bits by Western weapons. We have to figure out ways to stop it. There are activists all over the country, uh, all over the world, but if we're focusing in on the U.S., there are activists who every day since the start of this genocide in Gaza have been engaged in incredible direct actions and protests to stop these weapons manufacturers and these war criminal, you know, conspirators um, from profiting. And um, that is, is incredibly necessary. People are getting arrested. People are locking themselves down at the gates of, of Boeing and of Elbit uh, facilities. 
and stopping the the you know the weapon shipments on on cargo ships uh, just just like you know at the port of Oakland a couple of weeks ago and then two days later at the the port of Tacoma Washington it's time for people to not see this as business as usual the majority of people in this country do not want this genocide to happen and it is incumbent upon us to do whatever we can to stand in the way of these war crimes. Um, I mean, we're seeing these marches nearly every weekend just here in, in California, you know, and, and, you know, every day around the country. Uh, we're thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are gathering to, you know, add their voice to this growing, exponentially growing choir saying not in our name, stop the bombing, stop this genocide, and uh, warning the Biden administration that they're going to be voted out. So you you sort of mentioned um, the widespread um, shows of support and solidarity for Pal- Palestinians that we've seen in recent weeks. I'm kind of wondering, like, what do you what do you make of just these large, large responses that we've been seeing? I think it's really moving and it's really telling that people aren't buying Israel's lies anymore and they're not buying the lies that, you know, the, the, the cover up. Also, I mean, it exposes this, this really necessary rift in the Jewish community where those of us in the Jewish community who were taught, you know, the lessons of the Holocaust and the pogroms and the generational trauma of anti-Semitism, European anti-Semitism, because it is a European syndrome. Palestinians have nothing to do with European anti-Semitism, and they shouldn't have to pay the price for that guilt. Um, but there are Jews uh, like me and like many of my friends and colleagues and family members um, who believe that never again means never again for anyone. And then there are elements of the Jewish community who took those lessons and have interpreted them to mean never again, just for Jews. And I think that that is that, that divide, that rift is expanding. Um, I think, especially in the younger generation of Jewish Americans who have nothing to do with Israel, who, uh, you know, maybe even grew up, you know, in, in Zionist communities and Zionist synagogues, um, but are really questioning, like, why, why does Israel have to exist as a state at the expense of Palestinians? Um, and they're having these really difficult but necessary conversations with their parents and their grandparents. Um, and to me, that's also part of the necessary solidarity movement. That's, that's part of changing the paradigm in this country where Israel has just been, you know, sort of like, um, ne- it's never talked about in any realistic terms. It's like this very fantastical, mythological even, um, place in, in Jewish American communities. And, um, and people are seeing it for what it really is and what it always has been, which is a, a, a political, settler, colonial, ideological, racist, apartheid, genocidal state. Um, and so that, again, that to me is, is really moving. And it's really moving to see um, people of all backgrounds coming together, marching in the streets, shutting down the ports of Oakland and Tacoma, joining hands and uh, you know, stopping on the Bay Bridge and throwing their car keys off the bridge into the water, um, risking arrest, you know, bailing each other out. I mean, the, the solidarity is magnificent. 
um, and it is everywhere, and it is so easy to get plugged in. That was Nora Barrows-Friedman, Associate Editor at the Electronic Intifada. We're jumping in to remind you that you are listening to Making Contact. If you like today's show and you want more information, or if you'd like to leave us a comment, visit us at radioproject.org. There you can access today's show and all of our prior episodes. Okay, now back to the show. To end today's show, we'll hear again from Lara Kizwani from the Arab Resource and Organizing Center, which serves poor and working class Arabs and Muslims across the San Francisco Bay Area and organizes to overturn racism, forced migration, and militarism. Lara spoke as part of a panel called Abolition Means No More War, Free Palestine Now, organized by Critical Resistance and Haymarket Books. As Palestinians, we understand our movement as part of the movement against settler colonialism. We understand our movement as the struggle against Israeli apartheid. We understand that struggle as against ethno-supremacy, white supremacy, religious supremacy, fascism, and right-wing authoritarianism. And we understand that all these systems of oppression are used to exploit and dominate indigenous people and land from manifest destiny to the Zionist colonization of Palestine to fascist coups across the global South. And as such, what we're witnessing in Palestine is part of a 75-year struggle against colonial violence, 16 years of a brutal and inhumane siege on Gaza, most importantly backed by and made possible by the economic, military, and political support of the U.S. government. So from an abolitionist perspective, we need to unpack the violence the system uses to exercise state repression and inhibit people of color and poor people from their, from their own self-determination. I won't get into all the specifics of what Israel has done, but we know that they have oppressed us as Palestinians for 75 years. My father is older than the state of Israel, and they imagine that the old which would die and the young would forget. And what we're seeing in the streets today and what we're seeing around the world is evidence that that is absolutely not true. And today, as anti-racists, as feminists, as abolitionists, we must recommit ourselves to the critical work of defunding genocide, defunding war, defunding apartheid and militarism, and funding people's health, well-being, and freedom. Abolition, abolition, I believe, forces us to ask the critical question, right, of what are the economic and political priorities of this U.S. government? And what do we need to do to shift those priorities? Our immediate strategy as a movement is quite clear. It's plain and simple. We must do everything in our power to stop this war on Palestinians in Gaza and demand an immediate ceasefire. Without that, we cannot build or strengthen our movement, let alone any social justice movement. We, when I say we, it's the big we, right? It's all people of conscience. We're lucky today to have our anti-Zionist Jewish allies like Jewish Voice for Peace taking bold and necessary steps to engage in mass civil disobedience against this war. We are fortunate to have other social justice movement partners joining us in that struggle. But right now we need everyone. The call for an end to this war should be echoed by anybody who values human life, by all freedom-loving people. And we know that we will not stop until there is a ceasefire. And once there is, 
we will not stop until there is no more siege on Gaza. And once that happens, we will not stop until we end apartheid and Palestine is free and myself and my six-month-old child have the right to return. What we have seen in the past and in the current that has had an impact are the mass direct actions, what we witnessed at Grand Central Station with our Jewish allies, shutting down federal buildings, shutting down freeways, disrupting warmongers when they speak, as we saw with Blinken, making it so that nobody can turn a blind eye to this. And let's continue to do that, to do everything we can to build and shift power. But while we work to demand an end to this war, we are also drawing on our historical memory of 9-11 and working to defend and protect our communities right here in the United States against the growing rise of anti-Palestinian Islamophobic racism and violence facilitated by the systems of policing, imprisonment, and surveillance. We're seeing the criminalization of any Palestine solidarity. Prior to this war on Gaza, in 37 states, it was it's illegal to engage in boycott, divest, and sanctions against Israel. We are seeing the emboldenment of political repression. More laws attempted to be passed right here, including in California, where I live, to make Palestine solidarity on college campuses illegal. We're seeing surveillance increase with the targeting of Palestinian homes, communities, and faith institutions. Superintendents and school districts, Democratic Club parties, elected statements are fanning the flames of racism, calling for people to quote-unquote stand with Israel. In lame terms, stand with genocide and war. And just as the struggle we know for a free Palestine emboldens those repressive systems of the prison industrial complex, Palestine solidarity also expands the terrain for social justice movements to unpack and challenge militarism, policing, surveillance in the spirit of solidarity and collective liberation. So while we're watching the United States government and so many of its Western allies clamor to beat the drums of war and annihilation of my people, we have a duty for those of us in the belly of this beast to stop this war, to defund this war, to defund apartheid. And we have learned from the movement against apartheid South Africa what has worked. As such, we call on everybody to boycott Israel. We call on institutions to divest from Israel. We call on the U.S. government to sanction Israel and end its billions in military aid. We call on our communities and allies to stop the annihilation of Palestinians by demanding an end to the siege on Gaza, the end to the occupation, freedom for all of our political prisoners, and an end to USA to apartheid Israel. But despite the egregious violence our people are facing today, I also want to remind us of the gains we've made, right? Because we have made gains over the last few decades, where the question of Palestine is central to any social justice movement. Today, there's consensus across progressive communities that an attack on Palestine is an attack on all movements for justice. And fundamentally, we also know it's never really just been about Palestine. It's about what the movement for Palestinian liberation represents, the ongoing anti-colonial struggle against U.S. imperialism, racial capitalism, global militarism, the decolonial liberatory potential of all our movements, and the de development of an implementation of a people-centered, multiracial democracy. The revolutionary Palestinian Arab tradition I come out of is indebted to and shaped by 
international feminists and abolitionists such as Angela Davis. Through that lens, we know what is made possible by understanding our struggles as linked, understanding the necessity of solidarity and internationalism, bringing it back to the radical understanding of intersectionality, the Kambahi River Collective. We understand solidarity is just, not just a simply a moral imperative. It's a necessary way of life for all those committed to changing the course of history and transforming society and ourselves in the process. The embodiment of that tradition is why and how I and AROC understand the struggle to abolish apartheid, the struggle to abolish Zionism, the struggle to abolish fascism in our homeland as one and the same with the international struggle to free all political prisoners, for economic and political democracy, for education and healthcare, for right relations to the land, for social justice, for gender justice, for climate justice, shaped in the interest of working people, right? So with the rebellions we've seen in the United States in recent years, we've also seen the unmasking of violence, of the violence of racial capitalism and policing, the whole world is questioning the foundation of the system, the historical exploitation and dispossession of Black and Indigenous people. And just as the system finds its origins in the exploitation of Black and Indigenous communities, it's also true that it finds its undoing in the centuries-long emancipatory visions of these same people. Freedom for the Indigenous people of Palestine is part and parcel of that emancipatory vision. When we call for an end to aid to Israel, we are emboldening the calls to defund police, to abolish prisons, to defeat fascism. That is why we struggle to invest and, invest and empower our communities, to expand the capacity of working people, to overcome capitalism and racism, to shape and determine our economic and political priorities for this society. Brown and Indigenous people here in the United States and wherever we, we see it, we know that we must continue to fight and advance this struggle. Emboldening and embodying this worldview helps us understand internationalism as part of our daily practice, as part of our own history and the history we are making. Abolition provides us with a really practical framework and vision and practice towards that end. And I'll end by just saying that we don't have it all figured out we haven't figured out all our strategies, but we have learned from the past and we know what's made possible when we know our history. And we believe today, and I can say this more determined than ever, that a free Palestine is the roadmap to global justice. That was Laura Kiswani from the Arab Resource and Organizing Center. And that does it for today's show. If you want more information, visit us at radioproject.org or leave us a comment on Twitter or Instagram. I'm Lucy Kang. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.
Audio Jungle. Jungle. expressed on this program are those of the guests and not necessarily the views of management and staff of OBS Radio, OBS International, and Greater Works Business Services. Guests who appear on this podcast are not required to pay a fee and is made possible by RadioGuestList.com. For more information, please visit our website at www.obsintl.cf. Follow OBS on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash broadcast section. If you want to contribute financially to help us continue broadcasting, please go to paypal.me.obsintl. Thanks for tuning in. We will see you next time. This is OBS Radio, a service of OBS International, a division of Greater Works Business Services. This is a presentation of OBS News which is responsible for the guests and comments.